Well, good morning, C4 Church. So glad that you are here this morning. We also want to say good morning to you watching and listening online. And next week, we will say hello to everyone in Auditorium B, too. So we're looking forward to that. Uh, yes, okay, they're going to Auditorium B. Great, great. If you've got a Bible this morning, I'd love you to turn, like Joanna just said, to the book of Joshua. Whether you want to navigate there or turn there physically or virtually, we're going to be in chapter 3 of this morning. The theme of today's uh, passage is, well, it could be summarized like this. It's to prepare. I think all of us have had uh, the privilege of traveling. Uh, All of us have had the privilege of going on a trip with our family or with friends or by ourselves. And we all know that to go on a trip, you have to prepare. You need to, if you're traveling, you need to get a passport or you need to have clothes or you need to have some type of a plan uh, to get ready. If we've uh, had the experience of moving a house, anyone have to move their house in the last three years? Raise your hand. Uh, it takes a plan, doesn't it? It takes preparation. It takes uh, intense thinking through because if you don't, then you end up buying pizza for your friends. You use them to move furniture. They hate you. It's trouble. You know what I'm talking about prepare. In small things in life and large things in life, we are called to prepare. In the intensity, the insanity of our culture, sometimes it's hard to prepare because we go from one thing to the next. But I want to urge you this morning to listen very seriously, very carefully, very intently, because the preparation that we're talking about this morning goes far beyond preparation for a house move or, or a trip. Today, the call is to prepare for the Lord is coming to move. And there is no greater calling than to prepare for seasons like this. Like we've been saying through the month of March, we've been looking at the life of Joshua. To see, to be warned, and to be encouraged to keep following God as a church in this growing, unusual season that we've been praying for for years. Like I've said week after week, we are simply now on the brink of what God has begun in a fuller sense. God's promises to this local church and to this region are starting to be felt and seen. We're on the brink of a larger move of God. And what we are asking, what we're discerning, what we're wrestling with is what do we do? What are we called to do individually, as families, and as a whole church in the early initial days of God's move that we've never seen in our church's history? Now, in Joshua chapter 3, we finally come to the moment. Forty years of waste is going to end in these next two chapters. Six hundred years of wanting and praying and wondering finally now comes down to these two small chapters. It's the morning after the spies have returned. We talked about that last week. And now the plan is to be engaged. God has now said move and now the time has come. And Joshua chapter 3 verse 1 starts like this. Early in the morning Joshua and all the Israelites set out from Shittim and went over to the Jordan where they camped before crossing over. 
all the people of God, over a million people, now actually camp right beside the river itself. They see this river. They are commanded, though, to wait in front of the river. Don't forget what the river looks like in this season. It is a raging river. They hear it by night. They see it by day. And the waiting must have impressed on them, must have, must have imposed on them the impossibility of what God has commanded them to do. They are supposed to cross this river. The very sound and sight of this impassable river, I'm sure, again, brought up questions like it would with us. Well, can we really cross the swollen river? It's filled with winter's melting snow and seasonal rains. This, this is the worst time, God, to ask us to cross because this is the most dangerous time. And so they wait and they watch and they wonder. Verse 2, three days after, the officers went through at the camp giving orders to all the people. When you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God and the Levitical priest carrying it, you are to move up out from your positions and you are to follow it. So the officers come through at the camp and tell people just like us, it's time to move. And they say, you will know when you're supposed to follow when the Ark of the Covenant moves. In other words, here's the summary. When you see God move, we move. When God does not move, we don't move. Now let's just stop for a moment and give some background. What is the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God? Some of us know about it because we've grown up in church or or we've read about it. Many of us who lived through the 80s and early 90s know about it because of a movie called Raiders of what? The Lost Ark. All these people melting like wax. Okay, that's our context. But the real thing is, why does the Ark matter? What is it? And what does it help us understand today? Well, the Ark of the Covenant of our God was a chest made from Acadia wood, overlaid by gold, and it had two angels on it, two cherubim on it. Why? Because God is called the king of angels, and they are his spirit servants. It physically represents what's going on in heaven. God is surrounded by angels. Now, the Ark of the Covenant had two functions. The spot between the two angels was called the mercy seat. Flanked by these two cherubim, that space served as the actual throne of the invisible presence of God on earth. It was called his footstool. And so the real throne in heaven, his feet metaphorically touched the earth there. It also was the place where the high priest would come up once a year and he'd take blood and he'd sprinkle blood over the mercy seat as a covering for the sin of Israel. That is why it was called the mercy seat. For in that place, sin is covered and sin is forgiven. Now, its other function is interesting. It contained the Ten Commandments. Within the Ark of the Covenant, it actually had the original Ten Commandments. This served as the reminder of the agreement between God and his people. Actually, you could say, this is where the marriage vows were kept. It was the wedding ring to remind everyone that they were in a love relationship with God because God had not given them the Ten Commandments to get to know him. He already knew them. This is how they kept the love relationship alive. Now notice, notice the emphasis in the passage. Notice the personal presence. God who is almighty, God who is all-knowing, God who is all-powerful, God who is in all places chooses. He who is transcendent chooses to be near, chooses to be known, chooses to be in relationship. He chooses to be intimate. He chooses to be among his people. So the priests from the tribe of Levi who had prepared themselves before take up the sign and place of God's presence. 
That very physical sign that God was with them, that very physical sign that God was moving up and out in front of them was important because it was an actual declaration that his sovereign leadership was going to win this fight, that he was going to overcome the impossible river. He was going to deal with all the enemies on the other side of the river. See, this again is the idea that self-sufficiency has no room in God's moves. Why? Because God does the work. Now notice what it says in verse 4. Very important for our church this morning. Then you will know which way to go since you have never been this way before. You have to follow God because we've never been here before. See, it's one thing to lead. It's one thing for lead. It's It's one thing to say I'm leading, but if no one's following, you're just a guy walking, right? It's it's one thing for God himself even to lead and say, follow me. But it's another thing if people choose to follow after him. But see, if they choose to follow after his presence, the command to walk behind his very palpable yet unseen presence is to teach the people utter dependence and humble obedience. Now, if they choose in this moment to obey, this will be the greatest difference between the last generation and this generation. But there's more. Here we get to see the truth. We get to see the behind-the-scenes reality of what really being on the brink is and what the call to step in looks like. It may seem easy or obvious, but it's not. God is basically saying to his people, you have never been here before, and so you have to follow me and you have to obey me because if you do not, you will get lost or you will die. Here's the simple truth. Risk Faith, trust, and stepping out. This is all the people of God need to do. But then suddenly in the text something happens. There's a warning. It's sort of an odd warning, I think, for us as modern readers, except it is a very needed warning today. And here's why. This insight that we're about to read together frees us, or has the potential to free us, of an image of God in our minds that we keep creating to make God suit us Or to make God safe. Our God is good and he is holy, but he is far from safe. It says this in verse 4. It says, follow the ark because you don't know where you're going. Then it says, but keep a distance about 2,000 cubits between you and the ark. Do not go near it. God is among you, yes, he is among you, but do not go directly near him. Now, this is wild if you read the Bible. First of all, this is a half a mile away. You may not approach the Lord your God by a half a mile. Don't get too close. Why? Because if you get too close to God, you will die. Why? Because human beings, every one of us sitting here, watching online, we're fallen. We've all been touched by sin, and it was a chosen thing. And since we are now touched by sin, you can't enter into God's presence without a covering or protection. Why? Because his very DNA is the opposite to sin. He is fully holy, and his presence, his very DNA, will not tolerate sin. And so when sin walks in, it immediately dies. There cannot be a rash entering into the presence of the Creator. And since the ark is God's meeting point, since it actually is the footstool of God's actual heavenly throne, when you walk near or open it, you are walking into the very presence of the creator himself. And if you do that without covering, if you do that without mercy, if you do that without help, you die. 
Time and time again in the Old Testament, we see this reality. In 1 Samuel later, 619, it says, But God struck down some of the inhabitants of Beth Sheremish, putting 70 of them to death because they looked into the ark of the Lord, and the people mourned because of the heavy blow the Lord had dealt them. In 2 Samuel 6, 7, it says, When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzziah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen had stumbled. So the ark was on oxen. It was being carried. The cart spilled. A good, loving Jewish man who followed God did not want the ark to be in danger. So he instinctually reaches out and grabs it. And what does it say next? And the Lord's anger burned against him because of his irreverent act, and God struck him down. Now, I want to remind you this morning, these are God's people. These are God's elected ones. These are the ones that walk with him, and yet without a covering, even they will die. We as human beings in Eden used to walk with God without shame or fear. But God warned us, right? He warned us that if we rebelled, if we walked away, not only would we be marked by physical and spiritual death, we would have to be separated from him. See, most people think God's a thug upstairs because first of all, he gave us a choice in the garden. No, no, don't misunderstand it. He gave us choice because we're human beings. To be made in the image of God, you need choice. But the reason why he removed us from Eden and barred us from going back was not because he was just deeply hurt and angry. It was grace because we would have died in the garden and the whole story would have been over. And yet, this is not the end of the story, right? There's more, by the way. It's not just with people. God is above all gods. God is above all spirits. God is above all demons. God is above all things. And his ark and his presence demonstrates this so palpably and so presently and so powerfully. One of my favorite stories in the Old Testament is out of 1 Samuel 5.5. An invasion came to the people of God. The Philistines invaded. And they happened to capture the ark of God. And they took it from Ebenezer to Ashad. And when they carried the ark into Dagon's temple, they set it beside Dagon. This was their deity. When the people of Ashad rose early the next day, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground. I love this. Before the ark of the Lord. I'm sure they went, hmm, that's weird. So what do they do? Verse 4. Well, they, they, they put him back in his place. But the following morning when they rose again, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. His head and his hands had been broken off, lying there in the threshold. Only his body remained. There is nothing greater than our God. Nothing. The image of Dagon and the real spirit that inspired it is nothing. For all things are created. There is only one creator. So, the Ark of the Covenant, by the way, is not like the Holy Grail. It's not God himself. Uh, the Ark was the place of God's presence. In its day, it was a guaranteed place of meeting between his people and for his leader and their God. But it's very different than an idol. The Ark is not the physical representation of our God, nor is it the only place of his presence. The wood, the gold, the nails, the angels do not have inherent power within themselves, but they became the vehicle of meeting. It became the place of encounter between God who is God. And so God says in mercy to his people, keep a safe distance. I'm among you. You're my people. I love you. But space. So God is holy. He chooses to lead and guide his people. There's now space and then it takes place. God now speaks first through Joshua to his people. He speaks to the widest audience. And he says in Joshua here, verse 5, 
Joshua told the people, consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. Consecrate. Make yourself holy on the outside and on the inside. Prepare yourselves. Confess sin. Be clean. Prepare yourself. Why? Because God himself has declared, I am now going to move. Why? Because we're God's people. Why? Because we're in relationship with this God. Why? Because to be part of a move of God, you have to imitate the God you know. So purity and holiness are non-negotiable. Basically, this is what Joshua is being told by the Lord and he tells the people, O people of God, prepare. Prepare yourself for tomorrow. This is God speaking. Tomorrow, I am going to act. I, the God of all power, I am about to do amazing things, miracles, wonders, things that will astound you, stunning feats. Am I not the same God that created all things from nothing? Am I not the same God who, who met Moses at the burning bush? Am I not still the same wonder-working God that sent plagues on the Egyptians? Did I not split the Red Sea for your parents and your grandparents? Did I not lead you by day by a pillar of cloud and by night by living fire? Tomorrow, he says, I am choosing to come. Every single person, prepare yourself, for I, the Lord, am really coming among you. Can you imagine what church would be like if God showed up on Saturday and said, C4, I'm showing up tomorrow. How would you change? What would you not watch on Saturday night knowing Jesus was physically going to be here today? How would you, who would you reconcile with? What would you confess? What secret would you finally talk to? If God said, prepare yourself for tomorrow I come, what would change? Well, this is what he's saying to these people in their generation. I'm going to do these things, and I love this. I'm going to do these things among you, not far away from you, not in another place, not in the heavenlies. No, no, I'm going to do it among you. I'm going to do it with you, around you, in you. Notice and feel the closeness, the proximity. Again, palpable presence of divinity. Verse 6, Joshua then moves from the people down to the priests. He says, take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass ahead of the people. So they took it up and went ahead of him. And so basically says, I want you to parade the Ark of the Covenant in front of over a million people and head towards the river. Now, I never caught this this week until I did some research. See, when the Ark was lifted up, it wasn't just a physical act of lifting up. It was a declaration as the Ark moves, so God moves himself. When Moses was alive in his day... This is what Moses used to say every single time the ark was literally lifted up and moved. It's in Numbers 10.35. So whenever the ark sent out, Moses said, Rise up, Lord. May your enemies be scattered. May your foes flee before you. When the ark was lifted up, it was a declaration of spiritual war. Oh God, Joshua is saying, see the river. Oh God, see all the spiritual forces behind and before us in the promised land. See all the idols, see all the peoples that refuse to know you. Rise up, O oh God, rise up like you did in Moses' time, and now do it in our time. Do your miracle wonders among us. Rise up and act. So the story goes from all the people down to a select group of priests, and then the story narrows even more for a moment, and God comes and speaks to his chosen leader. This, this leader, Joshua, pointed for this season, he speaks again into his life about needed courage and faith to move across the brink and actually to step in. He, he says, now is the time for 600 years to be fulfilled. I'm not going to leave you. I'm not going to forsake you. And this day, 
not only am I going to affirm your leadership to you, I'm going to affirm your leadership to the whole people. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today, today I will begin to exalt you in the eyes of all of Israel, so they may know that I am with you as I was with Moses. So tell the priests who carry the Ark of the Covenant, when you reach the edge of the Jordan waters, go, and what does it say, everyone, loud? Stand, where? In the river. I'm with you, Joshua. I'm going to exalt you. I've chosen you. And now you know one last time I am with you. This is what I command you to go do. Go tell the priests to go on and step into the river. Now, I read this and I was like in my office, wait, stop. This is not right. It would be better, God, to say, oh, my faithful people, why don't you go to the water's edge and stay there? Then I will do something and then we will go in. And God says, no, no, no. You must fully go in. You must dive in. You must not just put a toe in. You must step all the way in. And you must walk into a flooding, raging river. And and then I'm going to show up. So let's see if you really believe my promises or not. Now I'm reading this and going, okay, well, are the priests going to be killed? Will they have to hold the ark above their heads? And will the ark fall down? Will the priests drown? Why? Because this is not safe. This is not logical. This is not wise. This is not comfortable. Why? Because this river is a raging flood. It's dangerous. It's risk. See, God is asking them to do something that is outside of their control. Again, once, once we're faced with the issue, self-reliance or reliance on God. See, reliance on God, ever-growing, being led by God himself, is always at the heart of true moves of God. So Joshua said to the Israelites. So he goes from the people to the priest. God speaks to Joshua. Joshua speaks again to the people. Come here and, and listen to the words of the Lord your God. Ten. This is how you will know that the living God is among you. And that he will certainly drive out before you the Canaanites and Hittites and Hivites and Preziites and Gershites and Amorites and Jebusites and, yeah, those people. This is how you will tangibly know that our God is among us. And, and notice this. Joshua says, I remind you, our God is a living God. He's different than all the other gods of all the other nations. They can't save or protect. Their gods are idols. They're imposters. Our God, our God is the only true God. Our God is the fountainhead of existence. He's the creator. And you will, I want you to see this this morning, church, you will know. That word know, again, is Hebrew, is yada. It is not intellectual knowing. It is not cognitively writing a thesis going, I think God is living and let me, no, no. This is I will know because I have experienced, I have seen, I have perceived. I will actually participate in his move among us. It is intellectual and experiential. He says you will know that God is alive. You will know that God is with us and not with others because he is going to drive out all the nations in front of us. Now again, like we talked last week, God is seen as warrior here. That God is rising up to remove anyone who stops or attempts to stop his will. It's that great old, again, hymn that that Moses broke out 43 years earlier after the Exodus in Exodus 15. Then in verse 3, he says, the Lord is warrior, the Lord is his name. And God says, I am among you 
And I'm about not only to deal with this river, I'm going to deal with all these groups. And by the way, the groups I just listed, they're so easily listed. They are well-armed, they are well-entrenched, they are ancient, they have large fortresses. These are the same peoples that freaked people out 43 years or 40 years earlier. And they said, we can't take the land. And God said, I myself am now going to do this. And so Joshua says in verse 11, See, see the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth will go into the Jordan ahead of you. My presence, basically, God is saying, will go before all of you. This is my battle, my victory, my gift, my work. And then a new name of God is introduced. He's the Lord of all the earth. He's the one that is over all. He's the sovereign one. He's not just over his people, but he's over every place, every tribe, and he has the right to claim any land he wants because he owns everything. See, deities in those days and gods in our days, if you travel the world and talk to people of different faiths, many of them will say that the gods that they worship belong to their household, belong to their tribe, or are bound to a geographical area. But our God is not bound by a tribe. Our God is not bound by a geographical area. Our our God is not attached to a small family. No, no. Our God is not boundary set at all. He is the Lord. He is everywhere. He owns all things. He's the Lord of the earth. And when he chooses to act, watch out. Nothing stands in his way. So Joshua once again moves the people to act. And just before they literally step from the brink and enter in, one last time, he enforces what we're talking about this whole year. He enforces we're all in this together. He enforces the united idea. He enforces the idea that all of us go in, not just some of us, all of us. He says in verse 12, now then choose 12 men from the tribes of Israel, one from each tribe. Now, in a moment, we'll see why that's important. But he says we're all in this together. We're stepping in now. And so, verse 13, As soon as the priests who carry the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, set foot in the Jordan, its waters flowing downstream will be cut off and stand up in a heap. By faith, by stepping in and walking into this raging river, doing it, like Pastor Laurie says, afraid, by doing it then, God will act and he will do what he's promised. And God basically says this, I'm going to stop the water. I'm going to overcome the flood. I'm actually over the flood. This is an impossible situation for you, but it is not an impossible situation for me. And I promise you this, I promise you this, when you set your foot in the water, the water upstream will start damming and there will be no dam and I will cut off the flow downwards and there is no going back. You will walk across dry land. But the command to his people is, you have to cross now. You have to move from sitting at the brink and folding your arms at the brink or wondering or evaluating or building plans. You have to go, no, we're going in and we're doing it now. Right when you obey, right when you obey, all things will get better. My son had a temper tantrum yesterday. Ever remember those days? An all-out, like, war temper tantrum. Rolling, crying, screaming. I just sit. I just watch it. How you doing there, brah? Everything Okay. Right, no. Okay, all right, I'm just going to keep asking. And, and he got so bad, I just put him in his crib and said, I'm putting you in your crib when you're ready. All, and I kept saying to him, all you need to do is say sorry to me. and We're going to be great. No, I'm, all right, I'm going. He'd scream more. I'm like, okay, blessings on you. I'm going to watch Netflix. Screaming up there. I've changed. I'm an only child. Only, I didn't even understand this before. I'm like, yeah, coffee, okay. So he's having his temper tantrum upstairs. 
I came back in again. You ready? No. Okay, I'm going back out again. Blessings, bro. He's even more angry. Then came back in and he looked at me. You remember these experiences? He's totally out of breath, right? Sorry. I said, I'm sorry, I can't. What's that? What did you say? I couldn't, I couldn't hear it. And he said, sorry. I said, come here, Bubba. And he put his hands out, you know, biggest hug. I said, all you had to do is just say sorry. And it's all fine. See, God is saying to one million people, don't freak out. Put your foot in the water and it's going to be fine. All the hesitation, all the pride, all the... uh, No, 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 no. Just put your foot in. If you just say yes and you let your pride drop, the best people of God are led people. If you just let me lead you, you won't have to have all this other drama. And so, verse 14, the people broke camp to cross the Jordan. The priest carrying the Ark of the Covenant went ahead of them. There it is, the great raging rivers in front of them, acting like a barrier between God, his people, the enemies of God, the promised land, the river strong, powerful, life-threatening, defiant, but it's nothing when the creator comes. And it says in verse 15, the Jordan is at flood stage all during harvest season. Again, a reminder, stupid idea to cross right now. Yet as soon as the priests who carried the ark reached the Jordan and their feet touched the water's edge. See, they were commanded to go all the way in, but God honored them even when they touched the water. The water upstream stopped flowing. It piled up in a heap a great distance away in a town called Adam. And the water flowing down to the Dead Sea was completely cut off. 19 miles, scholars say, upstream, water starts piling and piling and piling with a dam, but there's no dam. The hand of God is holding back the water. There's a wall, but there's no wall. And this raging river, hour by hour, minute by minute, moment by moment, loses power, loses energy. It morphs from a raging river to a river to a creek to dry ground. And it's cut all the way off down to the Dead Sea. And so the people, here it is, verse 16. This is at 600 years, right here. And so the people crossed over opposite Jericho, united and together. Verse 17, the priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stopped in the middle of the Jordan and stood on dry ground while all of Israel passed by until the whole nation had completed the crossing on dry ground. See, this is very significant. Here's the first thing we we, we need to catch because I didn't catch it. This is the first time that Israel is ever called a nation. They're always were the people or the tribes. No, no. Now they are a nation because they stepped out. God has said the last season was good, but this season is better. The last season was godly. This is a new season. And now their name has changed from the people to nation. Just like Joshua's name was Hosea to Joshua. Now the people are a nation. God is doing a new thing in their day. Why? Because they chose to be led. So they go across. And the priests stand in the middle. Now, I want you to imagine this. That's like a million people crossing. How tired do you think those priests were? Tired. But here is the truth as we are learning and preparing. Some of us in this church are going to have to stand in the dry riverbeds of this church so all people can pass through. It always begins with a small group in every great move of God. And so the people of God move across. They settle across now from Jordan. They're called a nation. And then it begins. 
Now, I'd love you to go home today or later this week and read Joshua 4. Because Joshua 4 is the summary, by the way, of how they cross. It's an amazing story. But there's one thing in that chapter. I'd like, can you all just turn over to chapter 4 really briefly? Because there's one thing in that part of the story I want us all to see. It's in verse 4. It gets back to our togetherness. Verse 4, so Joshua called together the 12 men. Okay, there's the connection. Verse 5, and he said to them, Go over before the ark of the Lord your God in the middle of the Jordan. Each of you is to take up a stone on his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the Israelites, to serve as a sign among you. In the future, when your children ask you, what do these stones mean? You tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. Now, these stones is what we call Ebenezer stones. See, Ebenezer Scrooge is not where this comes from. I always was confused growing up in a church where we used to sing hymns, and we'd say we'd raise an Ebenezer, and I'd go, I'm completely confused. Right? An Ebenezer was a stone or a group of stones piled as remembrance or memorial to God's acts. And so they are commanded, each one of them, to take up one stone, equaling 12 stones, as a symbol of hope, salvation, and God as warrior setting his people free and moving them into the promises, he said. This is a physical record, a place of remembrance given so they will not, listen closely, church, will not fall prey to the lie later that they did this, or they will not forget their God and start looking to other gods. This is set up to teach and entrust and call themselves and then their children and then their children and then their children to know and follow and to encounter the God of heaven and earth found in this generation. And then the story ends here. Now, as we've been learning for the last four weeks, the greatest fulfillment of all of this story is found in Jesus. If you read your Bible carefully, the amazing thing about the book of Numbers and Joshua, they are all foreshadows of a greater move of God. Like I've been teaching you, Jesus, Jesus is Greek for Joshua. So Jesus is the better Joshua. And, and the promised land that Joshua went into is good, but our promised land is the greater promised land. It's called salvation and the promise of new heavens and new earth. Last week we learned that Rahab, the prostitute, actually became one of the great times whatever grandmothers of Jesus because she followed God and she became the symbol for, the, for James of, of what someone who loves Jesus looks like. But even this story has more power when you read it through New Testament eyes. Here's the first thing I want everyone to learn this morning and hear. No one needs to fear entering God's presence anymore because Jesus has canceled and covered our sin so there is no holy boundary anymore because every time we cross the threshold of God's holiness, he looks at Jesus who is our perpetual mercy seat and his perpetual blood is shed. He perpetually prays for us and so we can enter in at any time doing well, doing terrible or in between because Jesus is our high priest and Jesus is our mercy seat. Beautiful. Hebrews chapter 4, therefore, since we have a great high priest who's ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess, for we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weakness, but we have one that has been tempted in every way, just as we are. But he did what? Not sin. 
Let us then approach God's throne, I love this, of grace with confidence that we may receive mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. Here's the difference between Christianity and every religious worldview on earth. Jesus did it all. We enter through Jesus and because of him, we can look holiness into the face and not fear anymore. Don't ever... Take your prayer times for granted. When you're blessing your Big Mac, I'm not sure if that's possible, but when you're trying, (laughs) you are entering into that. Powerful. Not only is there no more boundary in that sense, but here's the second amazing thing we learn. We are the place of the ark. We're the temple and the tabernacle. We're now the place of meeting. Each Christian, when they accept Christ, is positively possessed. Why? Because the Spirit of God lives and moves in each one of us. What did Paul say? 1 Corinthians 6.19. Do you not know that your bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, who you've received from God? You're not your own. Or or 1 Corinthians 12, 13, we're all baptized by one spirit to form one body, whether Jews or non-Jews, slave or free, we're all given the one spirit to drink. And so because of Jesus' mercy and work, there's no boundary. We actually become the place of contact on earth. We're the guaranteed place of meeting because he's in us. And then that is why, everyone ready? We get water baptized. You say, what? I'm totally confused. Let me show this to you. The Red Sea and the Jordan were foreshadows for what we experience today. See, when God is among you, and you're in relationship with him, and he's living among you, you demonstrate it through symbol. And so, what we have in the Old Testament is a setup for the new. We are known by God. He is actually in us. We're the guaranteed place of meeting, and we symbolize this great move of God by getting, walking, walking through the Jordan or the Red Sea. Like, this is what this, this is roots are, are all about. And so, let me just encourage you. If you're a Christian this morning, and you have not been baptized. It's commanded by Jesus. It doesn't save you. You're already related to him. You're already in him. You're already the guaranteed place of meeting. You already have access, but it's time you walk through the Jordan because Jesus commands it. It's the public demonstration that he has saved you and you've been set free. April, last week of April, we're doing baptisms. Side note, sign up. We want to dunk you. Absolutely. So our whole story finds its roots And it's full expression in the Gospels. We enter God's presence. We don't need to fear. We're the guaranteed place of meeting. And we've been, again, continually remembering God's work through water. Here's the other thing I want to share and then I'm going to end. I was wrestling this whole week, praying for us and our community as we're doing this this passage. Because this is a great passage. There's so much in these two passages, actually three and four I think he uses the phrase crossover 22 times to stand five times. There's themes of faith and remembrance. There's themes of being together. There's, there's commands to step out. Like this, you know, as pastors would say, this would preach. And as I was getting ready to sort of, again, deal with the issue, what is God trying to teach our church in this season as we're walking into the unique promised land that he's called our church and other churches in the region to do, as I was preparing and praying, I had an unexpected thing happen to me. As I was praying, instead of getting application, I I was given a word for our church. And this rarely happens to me in this setting. And so uh, I started writing and praying about it. I got it tested from other leaders. And so instead of ending with applications today, 
I'm going to read this word. Now, let me be very clear. A word or a prophecy for the church is not Scripture. It's lesser than Scripture. It has to be tested. Good things have to be kept. Bad things need to be thrown out. That's why it's not Scripture. It's fallible. But again, we believe in all the gifts in this church. And as I was praying and preparing, I was, this was not on the radar at all. But I genuinely believe out of this passage this morning, in this moment in March, this is what the flavor or the prompting of God is for our church at this season. And so could I ask you to do something as I end? Because it's actually quite lengthy. I mean, not 40 minutes lengthy. It's just lengthy. I just want to reassure you. Uh, could you get yourself ready to listen? Could I ask everyone to put their phones down? Uh, could I ask, every, unless you're going to take notes, could I ask you if you've been thinking about problems at home or uh, Swiss Chalet or anything else in the middle, could I ask you just to take a moment and not, uh, you know, we bring our stuff in. We don't leave it at the door. We bring it in. But could you just say, Lord, could, could you just handle this for a moment? I want you to get in a posture of listening because I believe the Lord in this very unique season our church is speaking. And this passage um, is very significant because it really is the heart and summary of what the Lord is doing among us. So I'm just going to read this without fanfare, but I want everyone to hear, and I'm just going to pray before I do it. So Lord, first of all, thank you for your word that has full authority and that we submit under. Thank you for what you've been doing in our church, conversions, baptisms, deliverances, miracles like uh, renewed faith. But Lord, we're asking for real renewal, real revival, real awakening in the region. And so Lord, if this is truly a word for your church this morning, uh, open our ears and our hearts so we can hear it personally and corporately. Uh, in Jesus' name. And we also just say, Lord, we're prepared to hear. Uh, and everyone said, amen. So I'm just going to read this, okay? Again, reminding you it's been tested. So here it is. Prepare yourself, C4. Prepare yourself. Many of you still hide from me. You choose not to tell me of past sin and pain. You choose to avoid talking to me about present sin. But I am coming, and I've come in part. C4, prepare yourself. Take time now, and do not be distracted. Do not be delaying. Do nothing else but first come to me. Each one of you, come quickly, come boldly to me, into my light through Jesus, the better Joshua, your high priest. Come into the light and do not withhold any longer. Talk to me about all struggles, all unresolved doubts, and all questions you have. As each one of you sits with me as a good father, I will show you what you must repent of, what you must confess, and I will show you what I choose to heal. I will not heal all, but in this church, there is much history, pain, and misunderstanding that I will heal in this season. Now is the time I speak to all of you and make up, that make up C4. Prepare yourselves. As my written word says in 1 Peter 1.15, But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. I see hate, mistrust, anger, politics, not patience. I see deep secrets that some of you think I choose not to see or you think I cannot see. I see all. I know all. I am everywhere. And so I have come. And all you must do is choose not to miss my move. Consecrate yourself. Confess sin and set your lives apart for my work in this part of my world. 
Do you not know and do you not perceive I'm doing a new thing? See for where I'm taking you and my fuller church, not one, not one of you have been here before, not one of your leaders, not one of your ancestors, not even the faithful remnant in this region generations before. Since I am doing a new thing for my glory, you must follow me now. Now is the time there is a line you must cross. Do you not know that I am God? As I was in Joshua's time, so I am today. As I dried up raging rivers in that time, so I will dry up all that stands in your way. I will dry up your want for sin. I will dry up pride. I will dry up shame and I will dry up guilt. I will dry up sickness. I will dry up anger. Will I not overcome all that oppose my will? There is not one demon, there is not one person, there is not one leader inside or outside the church that can stop what I've begun. Call out and then step out. As you cross the brink, the soles of your feet, where you go, I will act. For this season I have chosen to do wonders among you. You think your marriage is dead? No. You think your children will not return? No. You think that I will not save many? No, I will act. Will it seem marvelous in my eyes when I do these things? No, and yet you see four and many other people and many other churches will say in these days and in this generation, has not our God shown great mercy to visit us as we have asked him? O my people, write these things down. Do not forget the sins I have forgiven, the healing I have brought, and the salvation I have given. In this time for the season, write down what I do in you. Write down what I do in your families. Write down what I do in this church and what I do in other churches and in this area. For there will be times you will need to be reminded that I am good and I am with you. This is the place of remembrance where you will inspire generations to come, seek me in their day as many of you are doing in this day. I have come, I'm coming in greater ways, and I will not be stopped. Oh, see for my church the ones the Father elected, the ones I shed my blood for, the one in whom my spirit lives, to you I speak and say, step in. Do not let fear, do not let control, do not let power, do not let race, do not let history, and do not let theology be the place of your stopping. I am inviting you to partner with me, and this was the only capitals, now. It will not always be this way. These wonders in this season of miracles are sovereignly here only for a time. Do not harden your heart. Do not miss out. For now is the season the kingdom of my son will go faster and wider than is expected. Prepare yourselves. Prepare your families. Seek me personally and corporately. For the season called tomorrow, I will act. So Lord, only what is from you matters, not from me. The glory of your name and not our church matters. And our prayer is, God, that in Joshua's day they stepped out that we would, that you would deal with all sin and all secrets and all hiddenness in our church and there would be grace and healing. We pray for the restoration of relationships and families that is impossible humanly. We pray that you would replace everything that is ungodly with godliness. And we invite this season, Lord, where you would work in miraculous ways our generation and generations before us have never seen. We pray for the kingdom of God, the reign and rule of God to be found in my life and in my family's life, in my friend's life and their families, in every connect group in our church, across our whole church. And we pray for the kingdom of God to come 
in a way we have never seen across this whole region. We pray this because you've sovereignly started the conversation. And we just pray as Moses did, Oh, rise up, O Lord. Oh, rise up. Scatter your enemies. Scatter your enemies. And we pray this so people will have eternal life. Nothing less, Lord, again we pray, than renewal that costs us our lives, revival that is genuine, and awakening that evidences thousands of people meeting Jesus. Hear our prayer. In the name of the Holy Father, the Holy Son, and the Holy Spirit. 